Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Speaking of loons, Mm -mm. welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Let's get ready to poutine! Okay, are you, uh, what's that guy's name now? That's Bruce Buffer. Bruce Buffer. Oh, okay. Michael Buffer's brother. That's an interesting name, Buffer. Yeah, Mike Buffer did all the boxing announcing. Uh, forever, and Bruce Buffer does the UFC. Sure. Sweet gig. It is if you can get it. Yep. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. The content and discussion in this podcast contain graphic and intense content, and often descriptions of violence and death. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in crime and the darker side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp. This is episode 41. Which, for those of you who don't know, comes after 40. You're correct. Mm-hmm. Numerically speaking. You're a wizard when it comes to math. Are you like a, a PhD or... Uh, yes. Can you even spell mathematics? I can't even spell PhD. Oh dear. <laughs> Thank you to our regular subscribers and welcome to our new listeners. More and more every week. We appreciate that you're filling your ears with our dark poutine. We certainly do. Absolutely. This story has been pulling at me for a while. As it involves the death of a five-year-old boy and his grandparents, I've been kind of avoiding it. Oh, boy. Exactly. A lot of listeners have written to me and asked us to cover this case. So here it is. Yeah, I I know this case. It's uh, not a good one. No. This one also takes place in Alberta, but far more recently than our last one. Yep. On Sunday, June 29th, 2014, Jennifer O'Brien, her husband Rod, and their three boys were planning a bit of a family day. Nathan, the middle child, was given the option of going to the Calgary Zoo or hanging out with his grandparents. Kathy was 53. Alvin was 66. The oldest boy and Rod decided they'd go to the zoo. It's a fun zoo. Sure, I like the Calgary Zoo. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Jennifer and her one-year-old and Nathan all went to see Alvin and Kathy Lickness. Oh, that's a nice little 
Trippner to see the grandparents. Exactly. Yeah. Nathan was five years old, and he just finished his first year in elementary school. He said he really wanted to go see his grandparents. It was a treat that wouldn't happen as much, considering the two were soon moving to Edmonton. Oh. As well, Alvin and Kathy were snowbirds who flew off to Mexico to avoid the often chilly and snowy Alberta winters. Good call. Jennifer, Nathan, and her youngest son headed off to the Lickness home to assist with an estate sale that day. They were paring down for their Edmonton move. Hmm. My own parents just went through this before their first move after being in the same place for 51 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they sold a ton of their stuff. Mm. So as soon as the family got there, Alvin picked up Nathan and the two of them took off to a nearby playground. Oh, that's nice. After the estate sale ended, the family ordered some Chinese food and sat down to watch a movie. Nathan asked to stay the night at his grandparents' home. It might be one of the last times, so why not? Mm Mm-hmm. Jennifer, Nathan's mom, decided to stay over too with her youngest boy. Nathan was provided with some pink pajamas belonging to a female cousin of his. He didn't have anything with him. It was an impromptu... Yeah, probably doesn't care. ...pajama party with the grandparents. Yeah. The youngest O'Brien boy began to fuss. So rather than keep the entire household awake, Jennifer picked the infant up, hopped in her car, and drove home at around 10.30 p.m. Yeah, consider it. She left Nathan sleeping soundly with his grandmother. I used to love falling asleep with my grandma. (laughs) She used to do this weird thing. She would nibble your ear. (laughs) She was just like, uh, she was funny. And she had no teeth, so. (laughs) That's adorable. Yeah, I think that's what made it feel funny. Yeah. On the morning of Monday, June 30th, Jennifer O'Brien called her mom to see how the night went and to let her know that she was on her way to pick up Nathan. There was no answer. Jennifer gathered up her youngest son, and they headed the few kilometers to her parents' house on a quiet street in Calgary. Upon pulling into the driveway, Jennifer noticed that the front door of the house was open. That was odd. Mm. When Jennifer walked into the house, she knew immediately that something was wrong when the smell hit her. There was blood everywhere. Pools of blood were on the floor all over. Yeah, that's one thing that, that they really talked about early on is the quantity of blood. Blood. Yeah. Jennifer saw bloody handprints and smears in different parts of the house on the walls. It looked as though someone had ineffectively tried to mop up the kitchen floor as blood was smeared everywhere. Jennifer called out for her parents and her son, Nathan, as she went through the house. No one answered. One can only imagine the horror she felt going from room to room not knowing what she would find. I can't imagine. I don't want to imagine. Terrifying. Up on the second floor, in the spare and master bedrooms, were scenes from a nightmare or a Hollywood slasher film. In the master bedroom, where Alvin had been sleeping, there was blood on the floor and all over the bed. In the spare room, there was blood soaked into the bed and all over the walls, and there were pools of blood on the floor. This is where Nathan and his grandmother had been sleeping. There were bloody footprints and drag marks throughout the house and the hallways. But Nathan and his grandparents, Kathy and Alvin, were nowhere to be found in the house that morning. Mm. Jennifer called her husband Rod in a panic. She knew what she was looking at. She said, my family's been murdered and he's taken the bodies. Mm -hmm. She then called 911, telling the police the same thing. Calgary Police Service, who we'll refer to as CPS moving forward, told Jennifer to go back to her car and wait for them to arrive. Police will do that for a number of reasons. One, to protect the lives of the first on the scene. 
the dangerous perpetrator could have still been in the house. Yeah. Two, to prevent any contamination of the scene by Jennifer's presence in the house post-crime. For sure. And three, the first person at the scene needs to be cleared as a suspect. Not that Jennifer ever was a suspect, but this is protocol for homicide. Yeah, makes sense. Police searched the house and found no one inside. They, too, were horrified by the scene that overwhelmed their senses. Police investigated the scene thoroughly. In all the evidence they could gather, there was no fingerprints that were out of place, nor was there any DNA belonging to any individuals who didn't belong in the home. (laughs) Wow. The blood all belonged to Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence was a small bloody finger smear in the hallway. There was a lot of other evidence leaning toward foul play. CPS found that the door lock had two small drill holes in it. Oh, wow. CPS announced the mysterious disappearance of the three at a press conference that afternoon. They gave the names and descriptions of the missing, Nathan O'Brien, Kathy, and Alvin Lickness. As well, they kept the evidence from the crime scene to themselves, not wanting to give too much away. Mm-hmm. They were, however, optimistic they would find Nathan and his grandparents alive. Here's some of the audio from that first press conference. At this point, we want to remain optimistic, but again, the fact that uh, the house was not in the condition it was normally in and that there was indication that they didn't leave on their own volition, certainly we're concerned. Homicide is leading this investigation, which is not uncommon with missing persons. Uh, but we have our full investigative resources looking into this to try to locate them as soon as possible. It was clear they weren't giving all the information in their very first press conference. Yeah, it's interesting how they say that they're hopeful that they're still alive given the amount of blood at the scene, but uh, there's probably a method to their madness. We'll get into that. Perfect. Nathan O'Brien was a cute little boy with curly blonde hair and brown eyes. He was friendly, active, outgoing, and creative. He loved superheroes like Superman and Captain America. (laughs) His parents claimed he was the social connector in the family. It was he who would make friends first with the neighborhood kids, and then his parents would become friends with their parents as a result. Oh, what a sweet little guy. Right away, armchair detectives, not knowing the evidence, speculated that the grandparents had taken Nathan in some odd custody dispute. Yeah, well, with such little information given by the police this early on. Yeah. You know, it's a understandable. It leads to speculation, but. Yeah, we're going to do that as humans. We're going to speculate. Sure. And that's a logical one. Some suspected a pedophile had wanted the young boy and his grandparents were collateral. Mm. Police were already close, though. They began to poll the family members about whether Alvin and Kathy had any enemies. During his interview on June 30th, 2014, the day of the disappearances, Alan Lickness said he knew one man who sort of fit that bill. His name was Douglas Garland. Garland was the brother of Alan's common-law wife, Patty. Mm. Alvin Lickness, an entrepreneur and inventor, had hired Douglas Garland to do some wiring work on a pump that Alan and Alvin were developing. Garland worked with Alvin from 2006 to 2007. In 2007, Alvin and Garland's relationship went south when a dispute over ownership of the patent for the pump became a contentious issue. Garland felt he deserved more, and Alvin disagreed. Hmm. Alvin had just hired him to do some work. He was essentially a contractor. Yeah. Even though the invention had never made any money, Garland resented his being frozen out by Alvin Lickness. 
The two had stopped talking to one another four years previous, so 2010. Oh, so it's been uh, quite a while. Four years. Yeah, that's a good chunk of year. To simmer resentfully. Or get over. Time does not heal this man's wounds. When the police asked if Garland had threatened his dad, Alan said no. Garland was known to avoid direct confrontation, but Alan felt he was, quote, sneaky. There were a few other persons of interest as well, but nothing panned out there. Yeah. The search went on through Canada Day with no solid clues turning up as to the whereabouts of Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin. Although there would eventually be 1,300 tips for the CPS to run down. Oh, wow. As the disappearance of the three involved a child, the CPS were able to utilize the Amber Alert system. Good. They did that on July 2nd when they held a news conference to announce the Amber Alert. Mm -hmm. I was going to play some audio of Nathan's parents speaking, but it was too heartbreaking hearing the horror and hints of hope in their voices as they pled for the return of their child. I don't think it would be appropriate for us to share their pain in that way. I don't think that's ours to to give. Yeah, I can only imagine the pain and despair they were in. One thing that really stood out to me was the body language of the couple to the left, Alan and Patty. Patty is the sister of Douglas Garland. Okay. She spends most of her time in the video looking straight at the floor or straight ahead, and she's one step away from the rest of the family, arms crossed. Hmm. She even edges out a frame at some points. Really? Because she's probably horrified that her brother... Someone she brought into this family could be responsible for such a heinous thing. They don't know yet. They're just looking at him as a suspect at that point. But can you imagine what's going through her mind? And you can see her common-law husband, Alan, standing with his feet apart, looking defiant and angry with his thumbs in his pockets. Really? Yeah, so he's kind of angled away from her as well. I could be misreading this, though. His anger may have simply been that his parents and nephew had been kidnapped and possibly murdered. That's what I thought. So I get, I, that would, I can't imagine what kind of stressful time that would be for those two individuals. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. We have no idea how much the police had told the family at this point, but the pain on everybody's face was, uh, was really evident. And in their voices, it's very, very plain. I would imagine that the mother and father of Nathan were probably at this point had a lot of detail in regards to the uh, crime scene itself. The investigation. Yeah. I, I would imagine, you know, from all of the true crime I, I watch and listen to, they're, they're uh, not specifics, but they're going to be told that the, uh, of the yeah. scene. And so I can just imagine. And I assume that the family would talk if Doug's name came up. Oh, I would imagine so. Yeah, it's hard to keep that kind of stuff uh, yeah. quiet from family, but I can only imagine the pain uh, of the parent while doing that press conference. Like, wow. I can't wow. even fathom it. Yeah. If you'd like to see and hear this for yourself, we'll post a link on the darkpoutine.com page for this specific episode. Yep. On July 4th, 2014, police got a break. CPS had been using other investigation techniques that had proved successful in the past, they were watching hours of video surveillance from the homes and businesses in the neighborhood. A mm -hmm. hundred different cameras they had. So hours and hours and hours of video. That's a lot of footage. That's awesome. One vehicle stood out as having been strange to the area and only seen around the times of the disappearance. Hmm. And they were able to follow it around the city as it went, like from, okay, it's not going that way because the cameras that way don't show it. Yep. If my memory serves me correct, it was an older truck, right? That's correct. 
It was a green, rusty, older-looking Ford F-150. Yeah. It had been seen parked on the Lickness Street in the wee hours of June 30th, 2014, hmm. which is when they believed that the crime happened. Yeah. And there was a figure seen walking down the street, but the video was too grainy and dark, yep. so you can't really make out who it is. Yeah. 90 minutes later, video showed the truck driving by with something large and white in the truck bed. Yeah, I, I remember that, yeah. Police were able to match the truck to video along the route that appeared to be heading out of town toward Airdrie, a rural town north of Calgary. Mm -hmm. It was spotted at around 5.16 a.m. with the white object as it sped past 5802 McLeod Trail Southwest, and that's Buddha's Veggie Restaurant surveillance camera. Mm. Police believe that Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin were captives in the bed of the truck at that time, and they also believed that they were alive. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Strangely, just over two hours later, at 7.37 a.m., what appears to be the same green truck is spotted going past the restaurant again, but not back to the scene of the crime. Hmm. The bed of the truck was empty at that time. Hmm. Where had it gone? Yeah. Where were Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin? Police released a Be on the Lookout announcement to the media and the public regarding this green truck. The tips started to pour in again. I would imagine so. One tip was from a recycling depot in Airdrie. A green truck matching the description of the one in the video was being driven by none other than Douglas Garland. Hmm. Okay. Another tip stood out even further. Patty, Alan Lickness's common-law wife, thought it looked just like her brother Douglas Garland's truck. So things are starting to narrow down. He lived at home with their aging parents in Airdrie on their farm. Hmm. Patty forwarded the photo to Alan, and he sent the photo to the cops, another photo of the exact same truck. Hmm. There was that name again, Douglas Garland. CPS really wanted to talk to him, so they did that day. Good. They took him down at 6.20 p.m. on July 4th, 2014. He was pulled over by RCMP Constable Mills and CPS officers. The arrest went without incident, but officers had guns drawn and forcibly shoved Garland to the ground, cuffing him to quickly gain control. Yep. They were concerned that this is a possibly very violent individual. Yeah, if he's the one responsible for what happened, he's definitely uh, somebody who's prone to some violence. Douglas Garland, 57, already had a few run-ins with police. He had hoped to be a medical doctor when he was younger, even attending the first year of medical school before dropping out after an emotional breakdown of sorts. I wouldn't know anything about those. <laughs> he was said to have no friends to speak of. His criminal history was interesting, and this is from a CBC article on Garland. Quote, Garland faced criminal charges in the late 80s and 90s, but they were either stayed or withdrawn. Among them were two counts of possession of a prohibited weapon in 1988 and 1999, and an assault charge in 1989. Hmm. In 1992, RCMP busted an elaborate methamphetamine lab on the Airdrie farm where Garland lived with his parents. The 33-year-old was charged with drug trafficking and possession of stolen property. Hmm, so a meth lab, huh? Yeah. Yeah, quality human. He attended his first court appearance, but while out on bail, he fled to British Columbia, where he lived under a false identity for seven years. Hmm. He assumed the identity of Matthew Kemper Harley a 14-year-old boy who was killed in a car crash in 1980 in Cardston, Alberta, according to a document from the Tax Court of Canada. For much of the time he was in BC, he worked at a private lab in Vancouver. After being fired, 
He collected unemployment benefits under the dead boy's name. Hmm. When it was later discovered that he had collected benefits using the false identity, he wound up in tax court where a judge described him as intelligent but said he had attention deficit disorder and suffered from breakdowns, end quote. Hmm. Police have arrested him now. They did the takedown. Yep. What are they going to hold him on? They held him on that old false identity charge so they could question him, quote, based on reasonable suspicion that he was connected to the disappearance or suspected kidnapping of Alvin Lickness, Catherine Lickness, and Nathan O'Brien. Yeah, and keep him off the streets yep. while they uh, strengthen their, their case. Yeah. While police had Garland in custody, the RCMP and CPS stormed the ranch that Garland shared with his parents. They were hoping to find Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin alive, but they were not found. Uh. They did find a lot of evidence. There was a burn barrel smoldering in the backyard, away from the house, full of nothing but a pile of hot ashes. The floor of the family's large greenhouse looked as though it had been cleaned. Upon entering a barn, hoping to find the missing trio, police found a damning piece of evidence. A black duffel bag with three pairs of handcuffs, a leather baton, and a knife in a sheath. Oh, boy. One of the pairs of handcuffs was even a child size. Oh, I just get chills. Oh. The cadaver dogs brought to the scene did alert to a few places, the burn barrel, a pile of ashes, and a wood chipper. Oh my god. Even though they had not found the boy and his grandparents, gathering this evidence, police obtained a warrant to search the farm further. I, I would imagine. So they found this evidence while looking for people who were alive, but now they began to believe that they were searching for remains. Yep, yep, and thus a larger warrant was obtained. Yep. And that came that very same night, and the search began in the morning of July 5th, 2014, while Garland was still in holding. Good. Douglas Garland denied everything, saying he was at home in bed at the time of the crimes. No one could verify his whereabouts, not even his mom. She didn't know whether he'd gone out or not. Mm -hmm. He also said that he had an early morning appointment with his psychiatrist in Calgary, which is why his truck would have been seen on McLeod Trail at 7.37 a.m., coming back to the city in that video. Beyond that, he knew nothing else. Sure. Police noted a cut on Garland's thumb, a very notable scrape on his face and bruises on his knee and his face, all of which he just explained away. Yeah. Stuff around the farm. Yeah, yeah well, I banged my knee into this, a cow kicked me in the face. Police also seized the shoes that Garland had been wearing. They later found Alvin Lickness' DNA on one of those shoes. Mm-hmm. They also seized his truck, so the forensic team could begin looking at that very carefully as well. Garland was eventually released on bail. Cops told him to stay around the city, and under no circumstances was he to go back to the family farm. That is, until the police had cleared it after their very thorough search. Mm -hmm. Early on, police began finding a wealth of evidence. Three white Tyvek suits and a face mask. And what's a Tyvek suit? A Tyvek suit covers the whole body, preventing DNA cross-contamination. They're worn by some crime scene investigators to prevent contaminating a scene, or medical professionals dealing with a highly contagious outbreak like your favorite Ebola. Okay, yep. So those complete white, yep. my thoughts immediately went to Ebola. Of course. Scott's obsessed with Ebola. Up in the rafters of the Garland's basement, police found a hard drive. This would be a key piece of evidence later on. Mm. Garland had been cyber-stalking Kathy and Alvin for some time. What police discovered on the hard drive 
pointed to Garland's having a long, violent, resentful obsession with the Lickness family, that perhaps as they were planning to move to Edmonton in only two weeks, he took the night of their estate sale to strike. He may have believed this was his last chance for revenge and didn't want them to get away. Oh, interesting. On it, they found Google searches that he had been doing. And here's a list that CBC published. Oh, okay. Quote, the Lickness estate sale, Alvin Lickness, Kathy Lickness, and Catherine's phone number, amputation and autopsy tools, amputation retractor, force needed for concussion, lack of oxygen brain damage minutes, how to drill a schlag lock, then that's accessed uh, seven days before the family disappeared. Most painful torture. Human dissection. Bone grinder. Blood stain pattern test. Blood removal solution. Jesus, that's a pretty... Uh, very specific. Morbid search history. But people could look at my search history and find very, very similar things. Actually, they would find all those same things because those are things that I was looking at today. But you would be able to support that by saying, I host the True Crime Podcast, and I was researching this case. I don't think he had that same fallback. I don't think so. There were also searches for things like... What time of day is best to commit a sneak attack? Okay. Yeah. And how do you cause the most pain to someone before death? Oh, my God. So one thing that I'm pulling from a lot of these searches is torture was a key part of it. Like he, he, he wanted he wa- people to suffer. Yeah, like he wa- it wasn't just like how to quickly kill someone. It, no, it's the torture was a key uh, fundamental part of his uh, need. Also found on the hard drive from the same CBC article were, quote, Photos of Kathy Lickness, documents relating to Alvin Lickness's businesses and his address, fetish-type photos of adult baby diapering with some people in handcuffs and sexual positions, uh, Okay. an autopsy manual, a folder called Gore with 87 photos of dead and dismembered people, 18 documents on killing or murder, a book called How to Kill Without Joy, the complete How to Kill book, and a user programming guide for Schlag BE356 lock was also found on the hard drive. And the, they had another Schlag lock that was programmable, and he was looking at how to hack that. Yeah, so that's some pretty specific evidence in there because it's not like how to pick a lock. Like, it's a specific lock. The forensics people went to the absolute ends of the earth to try and run down every piece of evidence on mm-hmm. on this guy and on this particular case. And especially the blood spatter folks and, mm. and the, the people who were there on scene that day. Everybody did a really great job at pulling in and gathering this evidence and making it presentable in a way that to a jury. This was a, it was a big case. I, I remember quite well as this was all happening and it was quite big. So uh, they certainly did treat it with the respect and due diligence needed. So good on the, good on the officers. Also in the basement of the Garland home, a set of prosthetic breasts and blonde women's wigs, a rack full of women's clothes in Garland size, and 89 pairs of men and women's shoes, which also fit Garland. Uh, sure. By no means do we want to indicate that one's cross-dressing equals depraved murder. It does not. No. It does give evidence, however, of Douglas Garland's ability to keep a large secret. Well, yeah, I was just going to say that his ability to have a secret life. Yeah. Yeah. None of his family or anyone who was acquainted with Garland knew of this. Yeah. Yeah. One shoebox, 
however, was found with the shoes missing, size 13 running shoes by Dr. Scholl, and they couldn't find those anywhere. Boxes of weapons and restraints were also found, knives, guns, and a straitjacket. And I already mentioned the handcuffs even in child sizes. Just under no circumstance, you somebody almost. A hacksaw blade was found that later proved to have Alvin and Nathan's DNA on it. Mm. Oh. A meat hook was found containing Kathy's DNA, and a small piece of human remains was found in the grass that also matched Kathy. Oh my god. A pair of black rubber boots were found. They had DNA of all three, Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin on the outside. Also on the outside of the boots, the DNA of Douglas Garland himself. That's pretty damning. Police wanted to track Garland's whereabouts on the days leading up to and after the disappearance. Through a series of search warrants, they discovered a video of Garland buying circular saw blades and hacksaw blades like the one they'd discovered in his home. It's just so uncomfortable hearing that with a realization of what it was being used for. Like, it just it makes me feel very uncomfortable. The most damning thing in that video, however, was what Garland had on his feet. They could see plainly it looked exactly like a pair of shoes missing from that size 13 shoe box. Dr. Scholes. The bloody shoe prints at the scene were matched to exactly this same brand and style of shoe. They corresponded in shoe size as well. Hmm, Okay. Another item of note was a large, near-empty spray bottle of RNAsaway. I don't know what that is. Well, I'm going to tell you. This product is used in microbiology to clean equipment between uses to ensure remaining DNA and RNA from the previous samples are washed away thoroughly. So I would imagine a medical application primarily. Absolutely a medical application to clean up your equipment before you do testing on another sample. Yep, exactly. Why on earth would Douglas Garland have any use for that? There's absolutely no practical application in regular life. No. None. Also found were two empty 50-liter canisters of liquid nitrogen, Mm -hmm. a powder that causes blood to clot, and half a bottle of chloroform. Oh, wow. Do you just have some chloroform laying around at your house? Oh, totally. Uh, Totally. Uh, Gallons of it. We we have so much fun with it. Yeah. You know, just hearing how well planned it is from his perspective, all the research and everything, like he's going into it knowing people are going to die. And it's just like the premeditation of it just it aggravates me to no end. Yeah, but I'm grateful that he, he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. I mean, like, burn the boots covered in blood for one thing? Like, <laughs> I want to give that kind of advice. Yeah, criminals are, are typically not the, they, they almost always leave some stupid mistake out there for us to find. The contents of the burn barrel were awful. Hmm. Police recovered bits of jewelry and clothing, including a half-burned sock, a circuit board, which turned out to be for the key fob belonging to a Toyota Tundra. Alvin Lickness drove a Toyota Tundra. Mm. Ten large samples of human bone were also recovered from the barrel, as was a baby tooth. Oh, Jesus. Police believe that Garland entered the home by drilling out the lock with the intent to kill Kathy and Alvin in their sleep. As no fingerprints or DNA had been found at the scene... It was proposed that Garland, who had researched DNA investigation thoroughly, was clad in one of his white Tyvek suits. Nathan, they surmised, was a witness who was in the way and lost his life just because he wanted to stay with his grandma and grandpa that night. Yeah, poor child. To hell with this guy. No kidding. 
Blood spatter evidence was throughout the Lickness home. It pointed to a gruesome blitz attack on Alvin Lickness in which he was bludgeoned in the master bedroom where he slept. <laughs> Kathy and Nathan were attacked in the same way in the spare bedroom where they were sleeping. Smears and drips and blood pools throughout the house indicated that Nathan and his grandparents were still alive when they left the home. Hmm. While police are still investigating the scene, Douglas Garland was under CPS surveillance. Oh. They didn't want him to slip away. Yeah, for sure. Especially when they were gathering so much evidence that pointed to him as a kidnapper and a killer. Mm -hmm. Garland was spotted in a rental car, but gave cops a slip. The car was found close to the Garland farm, of course, but mm -hmm. there was no sign of Douglas Garland. So dark, the CPS Hawks unit, or Helicopter Air Watch for Community Safety, was called in to aid in the search. The CPS Air Support Unit flies two EC-120 helicopters. I'll assume those are great helicopters. They're good popo helicopters sure, for sure. Sure, what a great name, Hawks. And they also have a noise dampening uh, in their tail rotors, apparently. Ooh. So it's not for bad guys, but for flying over neighborhoods so you don't... Wake up all the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should try getting those in Surrey. Yeah. <laughs> we hear a lot of helicopters. Yeah. Upon arrival at the scene, pilots used infrared cameras to discover a subject that turned out to be Garland crawling through a grove of trees to hide himself toward the family farm. Hmm. They relayed his position to the units on the ground, and he was finally arrested, again, without incident. I'm curious, like, why was he trying to go back to the farm? Weren't there police... To tamper with evidence? But weren't they on scene at that point, or were they just at the... Maybe he didn't think they'd be there in the middle of the night. Dimwit. Yeah, or that they'd be watching or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. When called out of his hiding spot, Garland strode out of the woods and calmly lay down in the grass and allowed himself to be cuffed. Oh, hey guys, I, was, I lost the contact. What are you guys doing here? <laughs> One officer described Garland with a look on his face like a thousand-yard stare. Hmm. Uh, you can watch the entire video of the arrest in our show notes. Oh, really? It's, it's a silent that. fleer yeah. yeah, video, but... The takedown reminded me of Kevin Spacey's character being arrested in the movie Seven. Oh. Remember that? You know, oh, where he's boy, so yes. So creepy. Yes. About nine months after Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin disappeared, a photographer and pilot from Peregrine Aerial Surveys named Paul Gagnon came forward. He had been doing aerial mapping of the Airdrie area with a $1.5 million high-resolution camera. After hearing about the case in the news, he went through his photos and found images from the Garland farm from July 1st. Wow. The day after the disappearances. Yeah, and these wow. are high-res photos. Yeah. In these photos, near the far outbuildings to the south of the main house was what appeared to be three bodies lying in the grass. Wow. The two larger bodies were face down. The smaller one was on its side and slightly curled up into a fetal position. Oh, Jesus. From the sizes of the buildings, it was determined that these were the sizes of the three individuals who were missing, Nathan, Kathy, and Alvin. Mm -hmm. There are more details available about these photos, but out of respect for the families and victims, we've left them out. We don't, we don't need that. And the family doesn't need that. No. Close by the bodies was a barrel emitting smoke and what looked like the shadow of a person beside the barrel. Oh, wow. What are these? Like, this is crazy that this was captured. Yep. It's just, and the prosecutor just said it was dumb luck. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Dumb luck. Yeah. The plane did a second flyby the day later. And the bodies were no longer there, but there were looked like chemical burns on the grass. Yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen those. 
We've got Garland in custody now. We're ready to try this guy. With all this evidence, how do you think Douglas Garland pled, Scott? Oh, I assume he's going to plead as most of these morons do. uh, Not guilty. Not guilty. Yeah. This narcissistic jerk decide to put the family who'd already lost their loved ones through a full trial. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, complete disregard. They had to endure long days listening to and reliving what their family had been through just because this guy was unable to take responsibility for what he'd done. During the trial, many items of evidence and testimony were disturbing to the family and jurors and other attendees. They said it was unbearable at points. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine? Like, seriously, could you imagine being in their position? You've... You're being re-traumatized constantly. The loss of a child is enough. You don't need to be reliving it constantly. That's just horrific. When the aerial photos were shown, some people broke down and a recess had to be requested. Yeah, I can imagine. The defense presented no evidence. They tried to suppress certain pieces of evidence presented by the prosecution or give their own theories regarding its existence. Also pointing out that Garland's prints nor DNA were at the scene. Yeah, we can get you off because you have no prints or DNA at the scene. Even though there's this litany of other evidence. There's a f- there's photos of... <laughs> them in your backyard, essentially. Yeah. yeah. After it was all said and done, it was five weeks of testimony that Jennifer and Rod O'Brien and the rest of the Lickness family endured. Yeah. yeah. The case was left in the hands of the jury... After deliberating for eight and a half hours, the Calgary jury came back with a decision. Oh, that's that's quick. They found Douglas Garland guilty of three counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of five-year-old Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents, Kathy, 53, and Alvin Lickness, 66. Mm, Good. Before sentencing, impact statements were read from the letters provided to the court by the families. We'll give some highlights here, but if you wish to read the entire statements, we'll post links to the full text on darkpatine.com in our show notes. Jennifer O'Brien, Nathan's mother, said, Two and a half years removed from this tragedy, I still fight the darkness that threatens to take me down. It seems the pain is never-ending, something that I did not ask for, resulting in heartache that has not lessened since the murder. Our family has faced public pain and our privacy completely taken. Further on, she says, I remember sitting at our family supper table for the first time, only able to focus on this empty chair. There is, and there will always be, a missing space in our lives. Doug has taken so much from my family and I. God, I just want to hug her. Yeah. Jennifer also had words for the media. The way some of you, in parentheses, not all, have chosen to go about your job reporting on this trial has severely amplified the pain and suffering of my family. Sharing photos of my childhood home with my family's blood spilled will forever be digitally available to haunt us, and we won't be sharing those. Mm -hmm. Forcing us to endure a fight to keep the photo of my dead parents and son Nathan from getting into your hands was downright cruel. Yeah, uh, a few news organizations went to court to try and have those photos made public. Yeah. I can only hope that one day your work will cause enough public backlash that other families are not impacted the way we have been from your less-than-honorable work. Yikes. Yeah, I can totally empathize with him. Rod O'Brien's words were just as moving. His statement included a conversation he'd had with Nathan in 2014, the year he died. Uh. He titled it, Nathan's Testimony. 
In the spring of 2014, I noticed a change in Nathan's conversation with me. Nathan had begun to ask me questions about heaven before he would go to sleep. I asked if school was talking about heaven, and he said no. He kept asking me on a number of occasions in spring 2014 about going to heaven and what it was like there. Nathan said, What can you do in heaven? What is heaven like? Can you fly around in heaven? I told him, In heaven, there are only joy, happiness, and love. You can be a superhero and fly, play forever, surrounded by your family at all times. Nathan then told me that he would be there to welcome us into heaven. I told him he was mistaken. It was his parents' honor to welcome him into heaven as he had to grow up and become a dad and live to be very old. Oh, man, that's going to make me cry. Rod went on to say, It makes me wonder why Nathan was asking about heaven, except now that I believe God had begun to reassure Nathan that he would be there to take care of him forever in paradise. Oh, I want to give Rod a hug as well. This is heavy. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Two of the Lickness children, Jeff and Nancy, also gave poignant statements. The close of Nancy's statement sums up the ripples of impact that murders have on a family. After explaining to her very young son what had happened to his older cousin Nathan, upon turning five years later, the little boy asked, Now that I'm five, is the same thing that happened to Nathan going to happen to me too? Oh my god. Oh. She says, I studied my son closely for a moment, noticing how small a five-year-old is, how totally innocent and defenseless one is at that age. Mm-hmm. No, I told him. No, it's not. <sighs> After finding zero mitigating factors in Douglas Garland's commission of these heinous murders, calling the crimes brutal, senseless, and planned, the judge said, It is difficult to conceive a more cunning cruel and horrific set of circumstances of assault, abduction, torture, and murder. He continued, The horror and terror you visited on these three innocent people extends beyond the boundaries of ordinary human comprehension. The circumstances defy description. Garland was then sentenced to the maximum of three life terms, not allowing the 57-year-old even to apply for parole until he'd done 75 years behind bars. This ensures that the monster will die in jail. Good. Of note, about a previous episode, the Moncton Mountie murders, Garland's sentence tied that of Justin Burks for the toughest sentence ever handed down in a Canadian court since the death penalty had been abolished in 1976. Hmm. I didn't know we had the death penalty until that recent. We had it until that recently, but I don't think they used it since 1967. Mm, okay. Uh, serving the first day of his minimum 75-year-long sentence... Four other prisoners in the remand center in Calgary jumped and beat Garland, requiring him to be hospitalized. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Is it? No. Garland was rushed to hospital with non-life-threatening soft tissue injuries. The four were charged with aggravated assault, and Garland returned to prison two days later. I was going to say they should have got promoted, whatever that means in prison. Less than a month later, on March 7, 2017, Garland had been moved to Edmonton to a maximum security facility. The day he arrived, around 9 p.m., Douglas Garland was found breathing but non-responsive in his cell. He'd been beaten up again. Mm. He was taken to hospital again, and the last word was that Corrective Service Canada is investigating. Hmm. And uh, we've heard nothing more about who done it. There's no been no charges. Yeah, I'm not shedding any tears for him. Sounds like uh, Doug Garland might have a a rough 75 years ahead of him. Good. What a shame. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, not yeah. that uh, I I condone that, but it's the place he's in. It's what we talk about as well when we talk about uh, the judicial system and you don't let victims make laws because as a human, do I want another human to suffer? No. But as a, an emotional being, yes, I want this man to suffer every second of the rest of his life. Yeah. Just a few notes. I included Jennifer O'Brien's statements about the press as this is what I struggle with constantly. How much detail is necessary or appropriate to carry the story forward and still tell it fairly. We want the memory of the victims to be unsullied and are careful to exclude salacious details. This is why, despite numerous listeners asking, we take some time before finding the right way to cover a story like this. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, no, I I think we have to do it like that. I'm glad we do it like that. And it is a struggle to know where that line is in regards to are we capitalizing off of somebody else's tragedy or glorifying it? Because we want to show at the absolute most respect possible to the families because they've already gone through enough. The the best I can say is if we ever cross that line, uh, which we try to not do, let us know. And we will do everything we can to try to uh, rectify that because everybody has a different threshold. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are some families out there who, who are so glad we're covering the stories inevitably there will be some who don't feel that same way. And so if we cross a line, let us know, and we will have the healthiest of dialogue with you as possible. Absolutely. We are absolutely open to that. We want to be compassionate. We want to tell this story in a light that reminds everybody that if you are a family member who has had something happen, you are a human being who is left behind after this horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. And this is something that you live with day after day after day after day. Yeah. Uh, Scott and I are both people who have suffered trauma in our lives, and that's the place that we're coming at this from. Yeah, I, I can absolutely relate to trauma. I can absolutely relate to how it doesn't necessarily go away. Uh, you know, I had suicide in my family of a stepmom when I was four. I was molested when I was eight. I can imagine suffering the loss of a of a family member, like a child. In particular, a child, yes. Like h- how I can't, I try to put myself into the shoes to imagine it, and I just, like, I, I get so emotional. We're going to lighten the mood a bit with some more notes. Yeah. Christy Lee of the Canadian True Crime Podcast, she covered this in her fourth episode. And so if you want to hear her take on it, go ahead and listen. I'll post a link in our show notes to Christy's take on this. Oh, it was a great episode. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it really is. A big congratulations is in order for a fellow podcaster, Jordan Bonaparte, and his nighttime podcast. They're out of Nova Scotia. Mm. He has done a deal with Chorus Media's Curious Cast podcast network, which will see his show played on some radio properties owned by Chorus. Way to go, Jordan. Super awesome, Jordan. That is really exciting it to hear. It is super awesome. Good to see uh, good people doing big things. Yeah. Yeah, I got to meet Jordan, as I've mentioned, yeah. at the Toronto Podcast Festival. Yes, you did, yeah. He's a great guy. I yeah. just did a, a bit of a voiceover work for him, too. Oh. Also... One of our longtime listeners and longtime supporters, big time, Adam Luke Payette. Might. Fi- might. Has finally started his own podcast. If you like the Aussie accent and true crime, check out Point Blank Podcast. And that's at pointblanktruecrime.podbean.com. 
You're welcome, ladies. <laughs> yeah, go go give him a listen. He's a great guy and deserves uh, deserves your ears. Absolutely. We are already fans of his. Yep. Before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our new patron patrons. This week's good eggs are Paula Rooter from Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Oh, Michigan. Thanks. I wonder if Mount Pleasant is actually pleasant. I like the... The word pleasant. Well, we've got a Mount Pleasant in in, in uh, Lower Mainland. It's a, an area in Vancouver. I think it's quite pleasant. There's so, a town called, or a, a village called Pleasantville near oh, where I grew up. How can they not? They've got to be pleasant. It is pleasant. They've got to tell us if we're wrong, Paula. Eunice Chin is from Coquitlam, BC. Thanks, Eunice. Woo-hoo, local. Coquitlam. I like to say that word a lot. Coquitlam. Coquitlam. So... It's derived from a Salish word, which oh. means red fish up the river, uh, a.k.a. salmon. Oh, neat. So uh, Coquitlam is next to Burnaby. There's, uh, if you're near the border of those two things, they call it... Burquitlam. Burquitlam. I've always like, why not Coquernaby? Coquernaby. <laughs> it I like, doesn't quite flow. Uh, it does for me. Coquernaby. My good friends and all-around awesome couple Matt Hydes and Aiden Wagner... Thank you so much for supporting our show and throwing us a, some little cashola at the, our Patreon. Oh, well, thanks, guys. They used to listen to me drone on at my job, <laughs> and apparently they're still listening. Oh, you would think they would have got out while the getting's good. Well, thanks, you two. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> Allison Lee, Yumber Yarder and longtime supporter from Kuala Lumpur, has adjusted her pledge upward. Oh. Thank you, Allison. Allison, you rock. Marla Happany. Uh, another long-time listener and Yumberyard Good Egg from Springdale in my home province, Nova Scotia. Oh. From one blue noser to another, tanks. And, and from a brown noser to a blue noser, well, thank you. Well, how about them apples? Yeah. Uh, Christy Maylett, also a brand new member of the Yumberyard, and she is from Chandler, Arizona. And she decided to support the show too. So she oh. supported the show prior to becoming a member of the Yumber Yard, which is mind blowing. Christy, that's wicked. And uh, it was your town named after uh, our friend from uh, Friends? Friends. <laughs> I was good. I knew you were going to go there. Chandler, Chandler Bing. Arizona. Chandler Bing. I'm sure that they've never heard that. Probably. And this is the first time that joke's ever been made in the history of Chandler, Arizona. <laughs> Also supporting us is Libby Green from somewhere in the UK. Thanks a lot, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Is that is that like is it near anywhere? Somewhere UK? The UK? Somewhere UK? Somewhere in the UK. And Vika from Winnipeg, Manitoba supported us this week. Thank you so much. That's a lot of good eggs. Yeah, thanks, Vika. I don't know why I've got a very like a, a Winnipeg holds a good place in my heart because I have my, my dad was born there. So I was ta- talking to Carol about Winnipeg. So yeah. I drove a couple of our listeners home yep. after the meetup because it was just the, the three of us. Oh, those, the, the, the three people who haven't been seen since? No, it oh, was just two. Okay. And two. Oh. No, so I drove them home, but I'm coming back up Portage and it was, I can't remember what day of the week it was, but it wasn't a Friday or Saturday. I think it was just a weeknight. But God, people were racing at stoplights. On Portage in Winnipeg, really? Yeah, like in their in their uh, in their Corvettes and and uh, their motorcycles. Like I was watching people race at different stoplights, and I had to go quite a ways. 
So I watched a bunch of races. Interesting. No cops. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. I, I find Winnipeg has a, a, an old feel to it. Like there's, it, there, there's yeah, that's that's stuff we would do in my hometown back in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nineteen twenty-two. Nineteen twenty-two, when I was just a young wee whippersnapper. Nineteen fifty-picks. So, thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for all your pledges. We appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time support, you can send us some money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Just like Rob Weber, who recently sent us some donut money. Thanks, Rob. Donut! Donuts! Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Dark Poutine and tell your friends about us. Especially fun, as we mention every week, is our closed group, The Yumber Yard. And we've had, like, a, an avalanche of members. <laughs> I'm thinking about stopping an advertise, advertising it. No. Like, we had have literally had, like, 50 people join in the last week. That's beautiful. It's fantastic. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify, or any other podcatcher that you have. So that's it for this week, folks. I think we've exhausted Mm -hmm. Scott. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't take much. No. Thought. That'll do. Just thought alone will exhaust me. So anyway, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Napping makes me tired. Bye-bye, folks. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.